0: You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So, hi everyone, and welcome one, welcome all to another episode of Changing Reality. So, Changing Reality is a show from the WQHS Radio here at the University of Pennsylvania that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So, if this is your first time watching today's show, welcome, special welcome for you guys. But through this show, we'll be able to hang out and interview amazing people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, industry experts in a sense, to artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the globe. So by hearing these inspiring stories on how they started, where they began in a sense, and how their journey started from the more human perspective, hopefully we'll be able to pick out little tips and tricks for success that we can mirror in our own lives. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how these stories and how they actually got to where they are um, beyond what we read about in the books, beyond what we normally uh, have the privy to find out about. So through the show, we can hopefully uncover some personal stories that will change the way we look at our own lives. And to show you how much I believe in the power of stories or how much the power of stories has changed my life as an individual, I actually personally founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance, back at home in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with not only today our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but over 28 different countries to provide an alternative education platform for any student out there who wants to change their own reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, French learning activities, and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school that has meaningful impact not just on themselves, but on those around them as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old themselves. And the basis of all of this, the reason we could do all of that, is because of kind individuals out there who have achieved success and who are willing to share their stories as well, willing to share their time, their expertise, and shorten the learning curve of many others out And similarly like that, I hope that this show, Changing Reality, is that same platform for all of you who are watching today's show, that through the show, you can pick up the things that you need to have a little bit more clarity, a little bit more inspiration in your own life and that it'll springboard you to achieving the phenomenal things that you are meant to do. So if there's anything specific that you guys wanna talk about, any experiences, any industries that you wanna uncover, please let us know in the comments. You can drop more info about it uh, down in the live chat and we will try our best to take as many of your questions, as many of your suggestions as possible. Now, on to today's episode. Today's episode is a very, very special episode, in a sense. We have with us an amazing professor who is a professor of marketing and behavioral science at the Rotterdam School of Management at Erasmus University in the Netherlands. So his main research areas are in the autonomous technology adoption from both, in both consumer and production, uh, with many of his current projects exploring the value of human labor in the age of AI. He's published numerous papers uh, from advertising language, consumer identity, numerical cognition, and so much more, with his work uh, being having appeared in um, some top journals across the world, from the Management Science Journal, Natural Human Behavior, Journal of Consumer Research, and uh, even the Journal of uh, Marketing and the International Journal of Research and Marketing. And his work has not only been featured there, but also featured in media from across the world from some of the most prestigious institutions, from the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many more as well. At RSM, he is the Director of the Psychology of AI Lab and the Head of the Department of Marketing Management. And very soon, there have been whispers that he may even be, um, I would say, a professor here at Wharton and would grace our campus, too. So fingers crossed that we'd one day all get to meet him in person. But until then, without further ado, let's welcome our phenomenal speaker for today, Professor wung Hi,
1: everybody. Hi, Asha. Thank you for the very kind introduction.
0: I feel like you are one of those people which I didn't do justice enough, there's so many things that you've done, so much research, so much publications, that I think we need a whole show to cover that alone. But anyway, thank you for joining us on the show. It is amazing to have you here. It's a pleasure yeah and one of the things that i personally uh, always love having people on the show who um, as i mentioned in a spoiler that there may have been whispers that maybe you'll be joining us on the wharton campus soon in a sense i personally think that you would be an amazing addition and i was just uh, talking to you before the show that i'm sure you have numerous fans by then from today's episode pouring in for your classes and pouring in to listen to the things that you have done but until then, in a sense, uh, I thought this interview is an amazing opportunity for a lot of the students who, at the very least, could get familiar with your work uh, and you, the amazing person behind the work. I started the show because I feel like there's so much value in conversations beyond what we could read about in, in, uh, in our day-to-day academic lives. And that by hearing it from the source itself, there's so much value. So I'm curious, though, in a sense that um, you've done so many things. You've literally been a pioneer in many of your fields of research. Um, AI, you started uh, researching about this. You started, I would say, uh, publishing papers on this long before it became a buzzword that it is today. And you've been ahead of the curve in that sense, in a way. So I'm so curious to know, how did you actually come to this industry? How did you actually decide that this was the field for you? Was it something that you'd known as a kid that you had a huge grand plan, that you were going to change the world using consumer behavior? Or how was it like when you first, I would say, were a student in school? Did you know that this was something that you were going to do or that you were passionate about?
1: I had completely no clue. (laughs) And I I think that's... That's true, probably for a lot of people. Uh, first thing I like to say that uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to, uh, you know, um, learn more about the Penn student community, and uh, I do indeed like, uh, like you said, uh, hope to have more opportunities in the near future to get to know better uh, this amazing community and this amazing group of students. Uh, so I hope there will be more news coming uh, soon on this. But uh, um, in terms of like how I got to be a professor, I, I think that probably true for a lot of people, certainly in academia, but I think it's true probably in every field. Sometimes when you meet at a conference with colleagues and you sit around a, a table for dinner, you get around and say, you know, how do you get into this? You know, like it's not, you know, it's a niche thing. It's um, also business studies at an academic level. is maybe not what uh, you tend to so- associate usually with academia as much. It's a bit more practical, right? And, uh, and so it's interesting to hear the stories and everybody has a, an odd story, you know? So most people, come to uh, where they are in out ways and I think to some extent I think a learning from this for students is that uh, um, you can't plan too much I think you need to uh, um, you need to know your strength you need to know what you enjoy you need to know what impact you know you care to make in the world but how exactly you are going to do that you'll figure it out opportunities will come out and I think it's very hard there are very few there are some people always wanted to be a doctor. Okay, so day one, they worked their life. They, they did it, you know, uh, it's great. But I think this is actually a relative minority of people. I don't think everybody, most people are like that. So for me, I actually, finishing high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, uh, but I liked architecture very much. So I had a good uh, uh, artistry teacher and was spending a lot of time telling us about architecture. I found that field really fascinating. And so that was what I thought I would like to do. But um, <clears throat> this, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, so young, so uh, at the you time... Know,
0: you're not professor of architecture now! That's no, a bit I, of a jump from architecture to AI, okay, never no, mind, I'll, I'll oh,
1: okay. There is a thread, there is a thread. You'll see that things are impossible to anticipate, but they're not random in a way, so there, is a, there is a pattern. So um, I, uh, I thought, okay, architecture is a good thing, but at the time, you still was this, this impression that you needed to be good at drawing. You need to do, you know, hand drawing for for, uh, for architecture. You know, you started getting computers and uh, computer-aided design, things were changing, but still there was this idea if you are bad uh, with your hands, let's say, if you don't have a good uh, drawing skills, it doesn't sound like a good career option. And I had the awful, dreadful oh. uh, drawing skills. So my teacher said, yeah, I like that you like it, but I have to tell you, you know, no, <laughs> I don't think you can do this. I say okay uh, what do i do then and then i started exploring a lot of different topics and i found that many things interesting i mean um, i at some point i was thinking of studying history and uh, um, then at some point i wanted to do philosophy then at some point i wanted to do astronomy and then uh, the big divide was really between the uh, um the sciences and the humanities because i liked both and i didn't know really what uh, um, you know what path would be best and then i thought you know if i'm studying the sciences i might be able to pursue uh, cultivate an interesting humanities in my spare time and if i pursue the humanities i'm unlikely uh, to be uh, cultivating the sciences just because the entry barrier is so much higher so much harder work in some way to get to a minimal understanding so um, Uh, I thought, you know what, I think I'm better off doing something more on the scientific side. And then I was looking at what to do, and I didn't know, but I was fascinated by the social sciences. And I thought, what could be scientific around the social sciences? (laughs) I figured that one thing that could be good would be to study statistics. So, you know, you have data everywhere. And, um, you know, obviously this is especially true today, but it was already true true back in the, uh, you know, in the uh, '90s, when I when I was studying at university, and uh, so I thought, okay, let's do uh, statistics. Did that for um, you know, basically five years of um, uh, up to kind of graduate level, and then um, while being there, I really enjoyed the academic environment. I liked the. Uh, Uh, the intellectual uh, uh, vibrancy you know the uh, smart people you meet there the uh, pushing the boundary of what we know sounded exciting you know you find something that you want and you you want to study more and you're free to really pursue that interest Um, i like the freedom and and combined with also an institutional environment that is very well defined it seemed like safe and exciting at the same time so i thought okay i like to be an academic and uh, at the time, um, you know, I grew up in Italy and I hardly spoke any English. And I, uh, I thought, OK, um, but I would like to study abroad. So I was looking for options and I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I wanted to study something in the broad area around business and social sciences. Uh, and, you know, with statistics, you can do a lot of different things. So there was a lot of freedom what to do. And in the last year of the degree, you could pick um, different specializations. Mm-hmm. And uh, normally you take you one and you do something like five or six electives in that specialization. Um, and, you know, it might be something like national statistics, how do you cal- calculate inflation rates or whatever. Or it could be something more to do with the, um, epidemiology. There was one in medicine um, there was one uh, in operations research and optimization. There was uh, uh, one in demography, uh, so probably That's quite a range of
0: stuff. Okay. So very,
1: very different kind of things. And I didn't know. And there was one in businesses. And I didn't know what I wanted to do still. So I thought, you know what? Instead of taking one specialization, I take one course from every specialization. <laughs> so it made it made absolute no sense. It was a completely stupid package of topics that didn't fit together, didn't amount to some kind of a competence uh, set that you could market to an employer. It was really a bit stupid in that sense, but I thought I need to learn what I want because if I don't know what I want, how can I get it? So Mm -hmm. I thought by being exposed to such broad set of topics, perhaps I do find what I like. And I did take a market research course and I I found that really exciting to learn about consumer preferences, how people make decisions and I thought oh yeah that i really like it's like a mundane decisions like we make decisions countless times every day whether it is from you know the most menial supermarket items to to you know, whatever you consume when you're out in the street or whatever, so we make those buying decisions all the time. But we also make important decisions that really define our life, the houses we buy, and you know, big decisions. Um, you know, how do we make financial decisions to plan for our retirement or whatever? So there are high-stake and low-stake. Everybody has to make a lot of these decisions all the time, so it seems important. And so um, I liked it, and I thought, okay, that's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna study. The strange thing then is, uh, I think, a learning for students maybe that sometimes you it is worth just uh, making you know engaging in some experiences for the sake of learning better your preferences. You know, you may have very well defined preferences, but many people don't, and so it's sometimes useful just to do something in order to know what you want. And based on that insight, you might be able to make better and more confident decisions down the line. But sometimes I think it's worth investing a little bit of your time and energy budget just to uh, um, expose yourself to different kind of situations so that you can ideally learn about uh, your, you know, utility function, basically, you know, what it is that uh, uh, drives you and your interest and and motivation and so forth. So at that point, I ended up deciding, okay, I do a PhD in marketing and I I became then uh, um, a student at London Business School, so I moved uh, to the UK and then yes, after I'm the best business
0: school wow, i want to go there in a sense okay it's
1: a, it's a good business school it was a, again weird thing uh, meaning i thought I, the applications were you know early in the year but i was late because my graduation session was only in march so i thought okay i have a lot of time i already bought a backpack i was going to travel to mexico for six months that was my plan and then uh, and then along uh, the business school i hadn't found anyone and they got permission to extend the deadline so i just got in touch and said hey can you um yeah, I, could I apply? And so yeah, but you're very late. So apply right away. And they told me you you have to do this standardized test. And you're probably familiar with some of these, like the GMAT. And you know, and I said, okay, yeah, no worries. You know, I was a bit cockiest, kind of um, you know, cum laude student in statistics or this kind of business stuff. Yeah, and I did one of these without <laughs> preparing. and I got a terrible score. It was awful, <laughs> <laughs> bad. So, so basically, I took two weeks, and I I really. You know, study night and day, and then the score got a lot better. That's again a learning that a lot of things that we assume are meant to be indicators of innate performance, or some kind of like stable quality. In fact, are learned. So um, that means that if there are things that you struggle with, you might be able to actually do a lot to uh, improve your standing on that item I mean, if it's something that matters to you. You can make it better i think self-improvement there's enormous potential for that in almost everything i mean almost everything um you know you cannot get taller by just wishing it or whatever there are things that you cannot change but a lot of things you can um so then uh, after the phd i became a professor here in rotterdam in the netherlands and um we've been here ever since and uh, at the beginning of my career i was investigating mostly questions related to globalization so i was you know in Italian, uh, lived in the UK, I was now in the Netherlands, my wife is Swedish, so we had this international family. And I got um, interested in um, consumer cognitions kind of topic that related to, uh, um, to to language, for example, how do you process language in um, you know messages that you might appear in advertising when they are in your native language, versus your foreign language. We're interested in the notion of identity, how your identity shapes the way that you look at, uh, um, at the world. Um, and I did that for about 10 years, and um, yeah, um, I became full professor here, and at the time when you do that, in the Netherlands they have this um, uh, tradition where new professors are, they call it inaugurated, so you are inaugurated as a professor, you, for the first time you're allowed to wear a toga, this kind of like a medieval sort of uh, you know, um, uh, you know, attire. And uh, uh, you give a public lecture to all the professors in the university. So you're basically there in this hall and you give this uh, uh, speech in a, in a very formal setting. And typically what people do is that they reflect on what they've done to get to that level. And, um, and it served a bit like um, closure. You know, I had the opportunity to then put together and tell a story about uh, what I had been doing in the previous 10 years. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, what now? And at that time, uh, machine learning was starting to deliver the first... Very big breakthroughs like the self-driving cars, Siri was, uh, you know, in the making, and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, um, I was interested to this because in my previous studies, I had uh, done a little bit of, uh, um, you know, in some exams we we covered things like, uh, you know, neural networks, and I was interested in seeing what uh, what this technology was now able to do. And at the same time, was also interested from a professional point of view of how this was going to change the way the consumers make decisions. And even from a personal point of view, as a, as a parent, I was uh, thinking about what kind of skills do my children need in order to be successful in, uh, in, in you know tomorrow's world, because of course, the world is changing fast. Machines are able to do more and more. And uh, what is it that we will uh, be focusing on and what do we need to equip them so that they can be successful? So I was thinking about these things. And I thought, you know what? why don't I just start a research uh, stream on this? There was nobody doing work at the boundary between data science and, and behavioral science at that time. And I thought, okay, there's a lot of interesting questions, and that's what I've been doing for the past eight years. And it's been, uh, you know, it's been a good drive. I've been enjoying it. And I think, naturally, when you get into this kind of area, there's so many questions that there's basically no shortage of new uh, projects or ideas, and I've been quite busy ever since.
0: No, absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that I was very fascinated when I first started reading a little bit of the papers and the articles that you publish online was, the, was that intersection in a sense between the people element that often people forget about when they talk about AI and data and all of these things in a sense. And and one of the things that recently I've had the fortune of come to, to speak to a couple of PhD students who are very early in the journey, probably in their first semester. And they always have a bit of an issue in kind of picking a topic or, or something that they want to research about that that they feel that they can that they can really flesh out and that they are passionate about for you in a sense it seems that you you bring together kind of like what you see around the world with your own personal experiences and you seem to to merge the two in a sense was that something that comes naturally to you or is it something that you 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 had to crack your head over trying to figure out what do i do next in a sense
1: Actually, yeah, I tend to find research questions in the world around me. So I don't normally derive research ideas from reading other papers. Sometimes I do, but most of the times it's just by observing something in the in the real world. Maybe something in my own life, maybe something that I see people writing about in the media that strikes me interesting, important. And um, you know, I'm um, I'm a marketing professor. I'm a behavioral scientist investigating consumer uh, decision making. So I'm uh, basically an applied um, the way that I see myself and applied researcher, I, I want to study things that happen in the real world. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an economist in that sense. So, um, yeah, I think finding ideas in the real world are, is important because then you are more confident that the idea is actually important because you can see that it's a concern for some people. You are, if you see a phenomenon, you observe, you are more confident that the, the phenomenon actually exists because you already are able to somehow observe some of its manifestations. And uh, it is easier to persuade readers, for example, journal editors, that um, we should be studying this. So I think there's a lot of benefits from uh, seeing things out there and trying to study them rather than uh, you know sitting in the lab and come up with some hypotheses that may or may not bear um, on what people actually do in the real world. That's
0: not very true. And I'm <coughs> interesting in your journey, how you shared in the initial stages that you yourself were not so sure what to do. In your own career and then today you're someone who as i said pioneered this whole or was one of the very early people in this phases of research on the flip side now you are a professor you i'm sure you have students who are even more confused and, and not an uncertain of what to pursue Um, that you have met and you had had to teach in a sense have you ever encountered students like this or do they still exist or or be the outliers me and my friends so how, and how do you actually guide them towards finding things that that suit them in a sense of helping them kind of discover what their passion is or what field they should take. I think a lot
1: of students today should uh, um, relax a bit. I think there's uh, a lot of students who are very stressed. I think expectations are very high. Um, and I think uh, the danger of, um, <clears throat> of being so worried about uh, um, not achieving your potential or about negative outcomes is that you actually make those bad events you want to avoid more likely to actually occur. I think if you want to be a successful student, I think you want to be displaying a passion for learning. So having intrinsic motivation, you should be there because it's a life-changing experience. The people you meet, things you learn, experiences you have, and take advantage of that and not be too worried about, you know, having to pad out maximally your CV or having to go to every recruiting event and make sure that you are networking with everybody that you possibly can meet. Do the things that you think are giving you meaning and pleasure and uh, um, <clears throat> obviously work hard, but uh, do it in a way that uh, gives you energy, you not know, that takes it away. And I think um, I see too many students that struggle a little bit with that. I think COVID hasn't helped. I think has have been creating massive, um, I think mental health problems for a lot of people and maybe students especially, because I think especially in the age group between say 15 and 23, this is the time when you are supposed to go out, you're supposed to meet people, you know, you're know, supposed to be experiencing the world and you grow that way now you know living in a you know basically your world being constrained to a laptop and a, and a bedroom I don't think that um, it's it's ideal but I think now hopefully I'm hoping that we are slightly moving towards the tail of the pandemic and that people can get out and maybe catch up some of the things that they missed so travel meet people in face to face do things with their hands and and uh, you know get involved in projects and I think things like that would probably uh, provide a lot of inspiration to a lot of people like they have for people before um, so i would say my recommendation for students is like intrinsic motivation what is it that um, drives you don't make it only about extrinsic motivation the salary of the job the uh, you know the line on the cv um the likes on your social media accounts those those are not the right parameters on which to optimize your decision making of
0: okay that that is a very sound piece of advice i myself am guilty of staying at home for the last two years and now he's every time i see the sunlight so definitely advice that i have to take for myself in a way tell me a little bit about maybe some of the initial work you did in in your first few research projects in a sense were you always the kind of researcher who had that intrinsic motivation to see to the end or did you even prior to the pandemic suffer from bouts of Burnout or demotivation at times, in a sense. And how did you pull yourself through? Because research is something that people look at, like, oh, you you wrote a paper. It seems very easy, but there's so much work that goes inside it, in a sense that that is unfathomable to people who've never who have not gone through that experience that you did. So, how did you basically ensure that that intrinsic motivation lasts towards the end, anyway?
1: I think I was lucky in the first years of my career. I was in an environment where um, pressure was relatively low, meaning that I was able to dedicate the time I felt I needed to dedicate to making progress, while at the same time being been able to also maintain a healthy work-life balance. I had the small children at the time. Um, and, um, yeah, I actually had, a, I mean, th- this profession has a lot of advantages, but I has a couple of disadvantages. And one of them is, that you basically, before you're ready to start working as a professor, you have to go through a very long training, right? Because you go through your graduate or and then you have your PhD. And so you are basically close to 1830 by the time you, you know, start working almost. Um, I think I was 29. And um, and then the first few years of your career, you don't have a lot of stability yet because you have this tenure track system or this system or they call it publish or perish, where basically you are in a situation where your future position and advancement in your career depends almost entirely on your ability to produce output. And that is mostly articles in academic journals and obviously also your teaching in the classroom. And uh, uh, for a lot of people, that's a very stressful time. And so you end up now only by the time of the end of the year tenure which might be taking 30 is a very a bit by institution but you might be now in your mid 30s and you can kind of like have a bit more stability and, and be more comfortable with the place you are I didn't really have that I felt very relaxed from day one and in fact I had a great great time during the um, my tenure track I was able to do a lot of research study things I found interesting learn a lot in the process um you know clearly when you finish your PhD, you're not quite ready. There's a lot of maturation that still has to happen in terms of as an author, as a writer, as a researcher, um, to, to um, you know, learn ropes. Um, but uh, you know, one first project that I worked on, I think just as an example of how you get ideas from the real world, um, I mentioned already this idea of language, native or foreign. So I had a project that um, was initiated when I was already still a PhD student, or at least the feed of the idea initiated when i was a phd student in london and i had friends from all over the world and some were also italian so i would interact with them in italian um but then in a in a group with other people we would interact in english because it would be people who didn't speak italian around and i noticed in a couple of them a quite stark phenomenon where they would be rather polite when speaking in italian but they would swear a lot use a lot of swear words when they were talking in english and i found that interesting that it was apparently easier to uh, uh, to use swear words in a foreign language than it was in the native language. So that became a little bit of a dinner table conversation. When we have a you know, dinner party with friends, I would bring it up sometime and say, hey, do you find a easier to say beep in, uh, in English than it is in your native language? Almost everybody agreed. And so when I came to the Netherlands, I thought, okay, um, what am I gonna do now? My PhD was wrapped up, I was looking for new projects. And I uh, uh, I thought, you know, if you look around here, The native language of consumers is Dutch, and of course, everybody here speaks English. But uh, um, half of the advertising is in English, so there's a lot of advertising messages in English for Dutch consumers. So maybe it's interesting to study how the use of the foreign language impacts their emotional reactions to advertising stimuli. And so this is an example of how a dinner table conversation turned into an academic project. Something on advertising and very different from the swear words uh, I thought this started out with, but the psychological process was a very good, the same. <laughs>
0: I love that example. Such a good example, my goodness. And that is the—that is actually a very good example of how sometimes we see things in the day-to-day day life that can evolve evolve into something that has much more profound, I would say, research behind it, and a lot more and a lot of, I would say, discovery behind it. That's a very interesting example. Actually, I never thought of it that way. I'm going to go and talk to all my bilingual friends and and then get from them the truth. Now that you've mentioned it, it's going to be my dinner table conversation for at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> and. On that note, in a sense, um, since a lot of kind of the the work that you do is rooted from your own experiences, I'm sure. I'm assuming that the 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 work that you produce on the flip side of, of kind of like the papers and all are also, I would say, very practical and experiential in a sense. And I noticed that um, you wrote one article, I think, on AI in a experiential point of view. I think a couple of, I'm not sure when exactly, and I was reading that, it was very fascinating. It also made me very curious because I noticed that one of the things that when I was reading up about you is that you said that you also consult a little bit for companies on marketing strategy when you how what has your experience been in kind of like going out there to these people who are who have been in the company in a sense or in business in a sense using these marketing strategies and bringing to them new input and new research have they always been receptive I know some people are extremely receptive to new ideas while others maybe uh, are, are much less so in a sense so in your experience how has it been communicating the research that you've had and and kind of like the insight that you've gotten? to others out there who will be able to apply in their own businesses.
1: Well, one reason why I've been excited about this new line of work at the boundary between data and behavioral science has been precisely because it helps marrying more applied work with companies with academic research and mm-hmm. uh, and even teaching. So in my let's say previous line uh, of focus I was doing work on consumer decision making and most of my teaching were in the area of brand strategy. So when I interacted with companies around uh, you know consulting or training or or other assignments of that kind was mostly at the level of uh, you know brand strategy and brand management and so it was mostly focused on what i was doing in my in my teaching activities and there was a it felt sometimes a very stark separation between my life as a researcher and my life as a teacher i was uh, sometimes bringing in my research insights into the classroom but not so often actually and uh, not you know, if there were, there would be more like a side angle to the main issue, um, you know, of the session. And I never particularly liked that. I think you know, it's normal that as an academic, you wear multiple hats. Right? You have a manager, administrator hat. You have a teacher hat. You have the you know, consulting hat and a researcher, whatever. So it, it, we do play different roles. But ideally, you would like those roles to have strong synergies, so that you can build across the line of work. And that was often not really feeling like that very much. But the advantage of the work I've been doing in the last few years on around uh, um, data science and behavioral science is that it's aligning all of those directions much more closely. So I find that companies are very much interested in engaging uh, with my research and my ideas, um, that uh, in my classroom I can talk much more about my research than I used to do. Um, So in a way, I found uh, one thing I like about it is that in my professional life, I'm finding now this greater focus and alignment that feels more like it's one career rather than three different careers. Um, So yeah, I think companies do struggle to find ways of um, using data well and uh, deploying uh, algorithms in um, customer-facing functions. And so if you talk to companies about data science projects, you'll soon figure it out. The data science projects—they are very rarely failing for technical reasons. Now, sometimes they might—you know—there might be problems of data or availability, or but usually it's not the technical issues. The what makes prog- projects not deliver is a human side. And, you know, the human—you uh, um, know—users who do not adopt the product or the solution, the uh, um, employees who are not on board with the idea and might—you know—actively try to to sometimes even sabotage uh, projects, or uh, uh, you know, people might be feeling being replaced by algorithms and they are uncertain about the situation and the position in the company and so forth. There are many reasons why people might have concerns. Change is always difficult anyway, and change of this nature is even more difficult. So it's understandable. <clears throat> and I think it's important when you want to invest in analytics that you pay enough attention to understanding those uh, human factors, too, that you don't simply focus all your attention on the technical aspects and make sure that those are perfect, but then forget about the fact that unless people actually use these things, it's pointless. Um, So um, I think there is a lot of uh, gain to be um, achieved by complementing a data science focus with a behavioral science perspective. You know, I think it can enrich a lot uh, this, you know increase uh, project success, it can provide deep insights about uh, you know the value of the solutions, you know even improve the way that they are delivering results. I think there's a lot of benefits for companies and uh, and you know I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area still we don't know so much yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was just.
0: Thinking- but you have seemed to have married your interest for the humanities with your sciences and in kind of like this intersection of, of where you are right now, in a sense that you mentioned earlier, because the work that you, you know,
1: do that, yeah, yeah, like- It's, it's, fun it's fun nice fun. that you bring that up because if you think, I started out telling you, I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to combine <laughs> the humanities and the sciences. And at the time, I wasn't really, I didn't quite understand myself well enough to have that insight. But the reason why I liked architecture was precisely the fact that architecture matters too, because when you mm-hmm. build a building, the design of the building has to be structurally sound. You know, it has to be from an engineering and, and the design point of view, it has to be done properly. So there is a, certainly a technical and scientific side to uh, to the you know architecture. At the same time, that's not enough. You need to have buildings that are beautiful, they stand out, they fulfill their, their goal, they serve, the humans are going to inhabit those buildings. So there's a lot of uh, humanistic, Uh, insights also in architecture i think it was a combination of the two that was driving me you know driving me to that field now only a few years ago in fact i think about five years ago so i realized that the reason why i liked marketing as a field of specialization was actually the same because if you think about marketing marketing is uh, driven by data there's a lot of data about customer preferences and i came from statistics right so it's uh, Analytics is everything in marketing, and Wharton is basically, you know, leading that uh, uh, that pack, that field. Um, at the same time, you know, marketing is about uh, um, standing out. It's about creativity. It's about doing something different. It's about enticing people. You know, so there is a lot of also the more creative side and. Uh, um, you know, you have a left side uh, uh, and a right side of the brain, as you know, old metaphor. And I think marketing is one of the few disciplines I know where you you do you you nurture both. You know, you need to be both analytical and creative. And I think that's why I, I you know, five years down the line, I found that uh, I like to specialize in marketing because I think it has the same the same reason why I wanted to be an architect, actually. You know, although the fields are completely different, they both share this blend of uh, you know soft and hard. You see what I mean?
0: That is amazing. I, but I'm so curious how you how do you think your life would have turned out if you had been good at drawing? Because like I feel like that's one of the issues that, that, that people face is that they like something at, like, very early on, not because of the field itself, but because of reasons like that, that they see the synergy between two aspects of themselves that they want in a sense. But they, that might not be the exact thing that is their fit in a sense. So, do you think you would have come to this research had you have been good at drawing and pursued and tried architecture as a kid? Or, like, how, like, yeah, ball? probably
1: not, probably not. But you know, you can do, um, you can engage in counterfactual and think, what if? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you can think about life as a decision tree where you have branches and they separate out based on the decision that you make, the people that you meet, and the situation that you're finding yourself in. And, um, It's important to realize that while some branches of that tree might be more desirable than other branches of that tree, for a given individual, there are many good branches that are available. So (laughs) I'm happy where I am now. I enjoy what I'm doing. Um, I wouldn't want to do anything else. But I am quite sure, too, that if I had made different choices in the past, I'd probably be saying the same. (laughs) Um, You see what I mean? uh, There are many good futures, and I don't think we need to uh, over-obsessed about uh, you know, playing out counterfactual, What if I'd done that? Yeah, it would have been different. And sometimes there are bad outcomes. So you might end up in a situation where you're quite unhappy about the choices that you made. And that's, of course, unfortunate. The important thing is that you look forward, not backward, and say, OK, if I'm not happy where I am, what am I going to do in order to be happier in the future rather than you know ruminate and regret things that uh, you can no longer change? But uh, uh, in general, I think it's important to realize there are many good outcomes. I mean, harsher fri- five years from now could be in a million different places, but I'm sure that you know, they will be good, whatever it is. So uh, you know, you'll find a path and it will be a good one, I'm quite, I'm quite sure. So I think with a bit of talent and a lot of dedication, I think you, 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 you know, of course, takes a little bit of luck too, so not everybody's lucky. Um, but generally, I think there are many good things that you can do in life. You know, you, you tend to say, okay, I do this and I could only have done this in my life. Maybe it's true for some people. I think for a lot of people, there's probably a set of competences and things that are important to them. And there are maybe, you know, 15 different jobs that have a similar kind of blend of those,
0: you know,
1: parameters, which would enable you to be satisfied and successful. So, um, yeah, could have been a different me. Would no, no, no. Yeah. Very,
0: very well said. And I think it's a very nice philosophy for all decision making in a sense, which is that, that there are multiple good outcomes in a sense, which again, when, when, when it's a very interesting perspective and interesting that you brought this up because you are very heavily in the field of AI and, and kind of like uh, machine learning in a sense, which is always trying to find the best and I would say kind of like the most targeted ads or the best employee. And, and they pour in a lot of this data to find that optimal answer in a sense. And at the same time, that itself, that process itself, I feel, leaves the human touch of things behind in a way. From your point of view, we have in, in kind of like, uh, with the recent, I would say, increase of all of the data that's been available and accessible, and the recent craze of people looking to the data in a way, do you feel like that there has been specific points where the human, the, I would say the human aspect has been lost? And what do you think is the most I would say um, problem, I wouldn't say problematic, but what do you think is the biggest issue or the biggest loss that we've had in humanity with the increase of?
1: The... I think, that, I mean, you. That, that's a big question. You can talk about a lot of different things. And I, before I give you my answer, I want to have a premise. And the premise is that while it is important that we focus on the bad, because mm. we can do something to make it better. And I think we should always strive to improve things. It is also important to realize that we've never had it as good as today. <laughs> you know, um, to, yeah. today we've never had it as good and to, and, and it's, uh, tomorrow will be the same and so forth we've had amazing progress in a lot of different areas of life and the human indicators are speaking that uh, too although of course sometimes you have some hiccups and it's not always a linear process but generally speaking I think we live in the best time uh, that ever existed for humankind so I think that's great and you should just uh, um, treasure the luck that we all have to be alive today um, and I think it's a bit sad that so many people are so worried about a lot of things you know everything is, it seems to be a disaster maybe you know I think the media playing a role with that and, and social media in particular but uh, um you know there's a lot of complaining a lot of concerns and those concerns are you know rooted in uh, important facts whether that is climate change or let's say the war in Ukraine there's a lot of things that should make us worried but it's also important to realize that this is uh, better than we have had it. There would be a lot of other things before. Um, you know, you don't have to go very far back in time to, to see situations that were, by today's standards, just appalling in many, in many ways. OK, that's the premise. Let me give the answer now. And the answer is that I think one big concern that I have is that uh, AI, when it comes to, so you think about what kind of impact AI is having on society, the answer is many. AI and machine learning in particular is having impact in almost every um, domain and every area of human activity. So this is true across the board. <clears throat> One area where I think it's having the biggest impact on society overall is probably the internet and in particular social media, and uh, um, let's say the power of recommender systems broadly defined. So these are algorithms that uh, based on your past behavior, and remember, everything you do online is in a database, right? So you're completely tracked and monitored. There are, you know, incredibly detailed uh, digital footprints that you leave behind that can be used by algorithms to make predictions about the future. Because AI, in the end, is a is a prediction algorithm. AI makes predictions about the future and <clears throat> makes prediction based on past behavior. One issue is that uh, the business model that has been adopted by the companies that have been uh, Uh, let's say driving the development of the social internet whether that is google or facebook or um, companies like that um, has been an advertising driven business model so they have been mostly essentially monetizing eyeballs you want to basically attract an audience you want to keep an audience So the algorithms are optimized for that purpose so whether it is uh, uh, the the news feed algorithm of facebook that is designing posts uh, for you to see or the photos that are streaming on your instagram feed or or whatever the the next uh, video recommendation on youtube or you name it they're all designed to keep you there the problem that i have is that the algorithm is never asking you what kind of person you want to be you know, what kind of human is important uh, for you that you become? And so it's basically algorithms that are entirely optimizing on short-term um, urges and um, and um, desires. So uh, the algorithm is keeping you here now by showing you cat videos or, or whatever it is that is capturing your attention. But by doing so, you may actually make it harder for the person to achieve the goals that you want to achieve in the long run. Maybe you want to be a great swimmer or you want to be a great musician or an engineer or another million things that require time and attention. And you spending days watching cat videos is not going to make it any easier for you to achieve those goals. So what I wish was for an internet where the optimization criteria of the algorithms were different from maybe those that we have today. And instead of trying to optimize, making predictions about what this person will want to watch now will keep into consideration what kind of person this person wants to be in the future and try to help you achieve your long-term goals rather than only optimizing your short-term desires and urges, because I think this is a massive, I mean, we are basically, this is, I think, is a concern, especially for young people that consume so much uh, media content through these channels dominated by advertising uh, business models. Is that you basically have to struggle even more to achieve your long-term goals because it's like you have someone who's pulling you. You know, you have like a, a really like a you know an angler reeling you in with the, the algorithm making predictions. And saying, no, I want to get there. You know, I want to study for that exam. I want to practice for this or whatever. And yet another hour has gone down the bin. Uh, you know, down the drain because you know you've been there uh, now watching the end uh, YouTube video on this topic that uh, you really could have done without. But it's difficult to resist the short-term urges, and the algorithms are perfectly designed to understand how, or to, uh, to make predictions about how do you um, you know keep people in today and, and you know make them forget about the fact that there is a future.
0: But this is a very, very fascinating point, in a sense. I'm a big believer in you are what you eat, but not necessarily in that. <clears throat> Face, but but you are what you consume, which includes the media you consume, in a sense, the, the, the information that you're getting, in a sense. I feel like to a large extent that programs the way you think, that programs the way you as an individual behave, respond, and all of that. At, at, as someone who works with a lot of uh, teenagers who spend a lot of time on the internet, I can agree that sometimes it's just, even if you're trying to get out of an emotional funk or whether you're trying to get into the momentum of working towards something, in a sense, it requires a completely different profile of media for you to consume that is not maybe necessarily the media you're consuming now in order to make it's very
1: hard to do right i mean if you are bringing uh, you know to uh self-control fight uh, with the youtube algorithm it's like you're showing up with a knife and the algorithm show up with the bazooka you know it's hard to win
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yep, yep. but but that is a very interesting move. and i think we should like, like as you said looking forward and not looking back i think we should look forward for the day where we did the same weakness in, in 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 kind of those algorithms can be turned the other way in a sense where we could actually program what we want like like our, as you said, the long-term goals that we want to achieve the people that we want to be in a sense and have a media, I would say circulation that 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 we can consume that brings us forward instead of drags us back and hopefully I think we, need, uh,
1: we need the regulation, we need better consumer insights mm-hmm. too, the consumer themselves. So you don't hear a lot of complaining about the Netflix algorithm. Being so good, so good at understanding what people want to watch, and that being bad for people, right? Why? Because people pay for Netflix. Netflix' objective is to serve you things that uh, make you happier mm-hmm. in the long run. Because if you stop paying for the subscription, they lost a the customer. And At the same time, it's a media consumption. You watch Netflix when you decide you want to watch something. It's not on your phone constantly running and telling you, you know, calling for your attention. But you hear a lot of complaints about the Facebook algorithm, the YouTube algorithm. Why? because of the business model. I think um, a combination of uh, maturing of the internet and maybe regulation uh, should uh, should help us align better our day-to-day behavior with our long-term goals. I think basically you, um, yeah, I think sometimes getting things for free has not been a blessing actually. You know, I understand that people say it's great that we can use the social media platform for free, uh, but I think there are important repercussions to that which may be actually quite undesirable for a lot of people some applications that I use for free imagine google maps you know with the recommendations with news for for restaurants or shops that you might visit nearby i can see there a great fit of a free um, um, usage model and uh, uh, advertising based business which can provide a lot of service and value uh, but when it comes to media consumption and time consuming things i think that's a different story
0: Amazing, amazing. That, that's a very, very good point that I will have to digest and, and hopefully who we come up with a solution to that soon and a middle ground soon, in a sense. But no, that's a very, very good point. I'm very glad you shared that. On the flip side, in a sense, you have done so much, I would say, uh, delving deep into this whole industry and this whole intersection between the way people work and the way AI works, in a sense. In all of your research, what has been the, I would say, the, the, the research that you've done that's been the most impactful to you? or the most impactful that you've seen as it's come out and, and touched people's lives?
1: Uh, I, I don't know about uh, impact, but uh, one, I mean, I can make a mention too quickly. One you already mentioned was this research on um, trying to understand, uh, taking an experiential view on AI. The question we were asking is a simple one, but I think a very fascinating one. What kind of experiences do people have with AI? Okay, AI can perform particular tasks. You have different types of algorithms. But what experience do you have from the other side as a user? What is the experience of interacting with AI? I find that really interesting, and it pro- can provide a lot of insight for companies about how to design good customer experiences. Right? If you rely more and more on AI in your c- products and solutions, then understanding what consumers' experiences you know, there are with that, with that, then I think it can help you design better products and services. So that's uh, that's basically one line of research. One that I also find interesting, I'm interested in uh, the psychology of human replacement, meaning how does it feel to be replaced by a machine? And I I studied that both in the consumer domain and in the, uh, um, let's say, work domain. (laughs) And in the consumer domain, I had a paper where we're looking at uh, um, identity-based consumption. We do a lot of things in our life, not only because we want to get a job done. You know, means to an end, but also because doing those things is what a person like us should be doing. It defines us as a person. So if you are really into tennis, playing tennis seems to be quite an important thing to do. If you like to claim the badge, I'm really into tennis, see what I mean? So a lot of our behavior is driven not only by the consumption outcome, but also by the process of engaging in those activities and the value that they provide to you as a person. So it's not only about the destination, it's also about the journey, you know. And what we find that when people consume, partly because this is the person they want to be, then automation can be a challenge because it can reduce your experience of being that kind of person. If you're outsourcing a lot of important tasks to an algorithm or to a machine, then all of a sudden it's difficult for you to claim that you're actually doing the job, whether it is the cooking or the baking or the fishing or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, any activity that you might have as a hobby or as an interest and so it's important for companies that roll out uh, in uh, automation innovations to understand how those innovations fit into consumers experience of being that kind of person so th- that's that's in the consumer domain in the case of, co- of work we have a paper that makes an interesting point I find um, which is that it feels different where you're replaced at work by a human or a machine
0: yeah, I can imagine. So,
1: let me make you. I, I, to explain the effect. I can put you in the in the spins like if you were a participant in one of our experiments. So imagine I make you read a story about a company that uh, they are um, they need to cut down costs and they have two options. They can either replace people with people, meaning they outsource to an external supplier, or they can replace people with robots. So they can automate production and. Uh, and then you have nothing to do with the company. You're not working there. You're, you're just an observer. But some, for some reason, they ask you to make that choice for the company. So what would you think that the majority of the people say when asked that question? Would you rather have those jobs go to people or go to robots? What do you think that the mo- most
0: people say? This is a real tricky one. I'm feeling,
1: you know, there's no right or wrong question. What do you think? I
0: would say from, from, a, from a company yeah. point of view, I'd say- uh, You're an observer.
1: You're not the company. You I'm not the, the company.
0: company. I'm the person. I say people because you know you, you, you stimulate the economy you provide jobs
1: right so most people say if I get to pick and everything is the same then give the jobs to people okay so that's what uh, about two-thirds of people tend to tell us there is a second experiment a condition in the same experiment where we give them exactly the same story but now it's not any company now it's your company and it's not All any job now it's your job for some strange reason you get to pick who is going to replace you you get fired and you have to choose whether you want to be replaced by a robot or by another person. What do you think that most people prefer?
0: This is very tough. I would like to pick a robot just so that I don't feel <laughs> terrible but, that someone else replaces exactly. me.
1: Exactly. Most people now say, it's all very well. When other people's jobs are going, I want people to get those jobs. But if it's my job, mm, I like to give it to a robot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, so people have a short-term psychological incentive to prefer robotic replacement because it's less self-threatening. You know, you don't feel like you don't compare yourself to, to robots as much as you compare yourself to other people. So it doesn't hurt as much psychologically to be replaced by a robot as it hurts to be replaced by a person. This is some examples of the, the stuff that was done in the last uh, you know, few years.
0: You you just proved a hypothesis out there with me because I definitely fell into that. <laughs> but oh gosh, the, that is very, very, that is insane to think about. As as we wind down our conversation, as our interview comes to the end, my final question to you is this in a sense. What? Well, what do you feel like everyone keeps saying oh AI is gonna come it's gonna steal our jobs on one side but AI is already here it's already (laughs) it's already working in most industries and it's already creating disruption all around the world and in all spaces and it's been here for years already what do you think is one thing you wish people thought about more when they think of AI one more thing that you wish people we
1: hear a lot about AI replacing jobs but in fact AI does not replace jobs Mm -hmm. AI replaces tasks they take over particular tasks within a particular job occupation profile. You might have, uh, you know, a hundred different tasks you have to cover, and over time, AI will probably be taking over many of them. At some point, for some particular jobs, there might be so many that uh, essentially there's no job anymore, or that the nature of the job is completely transformed by technology. Now. I think there's a lot of um, cause for optimism, right? So the, if you look at previous waves of technological uh, uh, revolutions, like, you know, the electric engine, the steam engine, or the, you know, internal combustion engine. So this, uh, these are things that, uh, you know, and, and the computer too, created a lot more jobs than, uh, um, than they destroyed in the long run. And I believe that probably the same is going to happen again with AI. However, there is usually in this huge technological transformation, they tend to be uh, conjunctures. There are periods that can be quite extended, that can even run into the decades, where the society has to adjust. And uh, the adjustment can be very painful. So I think it is very important that we have social policies and we have instruments to facilitate that adjustment. Because a lot of the instability that we see around the world, I think, in terms of, for example, democratic uh, societies becoming more strained, more polar- polarized, a lot of it actually I think does come down to the impact of technology and uh, I think to to have smart policy making that help us navigate this transition is going to be crucial I think for for people to think about AI AI is a great thing it's it's actually you know what if we are going to get out of the trouble that we're in takes climate change the only way that we're going to do that is not by going down back to the stone age we can only innovate out of trouble. So we are only going to be able to solve these issues by innovating out of them. So we need more of it, not less of it. But we need to be smart about it and understand what policies are supported. So we need to invest more and more in education, for example, to make sure that our workforce is able to work with algorithms. You should be able to collaborate to be you know, productive with the algorithm rather than be replaced by the algorithm. And for that, you need a lot of know-how. Um, also, we need to keep investing in further education. There will be a lot of people that need to retrain and reskill. We can no longer go to university, acquire a stock of knowledge, and hope to milk it for 40 years in your career. Like it used to be you, know, you went to school, you learn accounting, then you become an accountant. For 40 years, you keep doing the same thing. Not going to happen. So, we'll all be reinventing our professions and our skill set every 10 years or so. So, we need to have universities and education systems that enable that going back to school kind of trajectory, which it's not we are not designed for uh, we you we train young people they go off and that's it maybe they come back for an mba or executive education maybe they come back as alumni but essentially our job is done and we need to change the mindset the job is not done we need to retrain these people over and over again um, taxation for example there are a lot of discussion around topics like universal basic income how do we create an inclusive society when There is so much force that leads to inequality you know a technology has this tendency to create winners and losers so inequality is always increasing at the time of technological disruption and we are seeing that today how do we mitigate it and facilitate that so that we can have a stable democratic society for example these are important questions and obviously are not for me to answer all i can do is to try to understand the individuals reactions and psychology around autonomous technology and try to provide some insight I might be able to provide input or guidance for some uh, policy making decisions but that's for for others to do but there's a lot of a lot to do so
0: you know i think one interview does not do you justice i think we need a few at least to capture all of the insight and the, and the things that you're talking about because these are big questions that i think the world is struggling to tackle and i really appreciate how you you You've essentially brought them out in such a nuanced and yet hopeful manner in a sense i think we need more people like you to help us be in the right frame of mind at the very least to innovate out of the things that we are in as you said and i really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today and and i can definitely tell that this is going to be an episode that blows the minds of our audience and because it's at least given me a lot to think about that i that i'm very grateful for so thank you so much for being on the show uh i had lots of fun talking to you and getting myself uh, i would say absorbed in your questions and your responses so thank you so much for, for doing this and i only hope that you had a fraction of the amount of fun that i had listening to you in a sense
1: well great to be here thank you so much for having me and uh, i hope to maybe meet you on campus uh, after the summer
0: i agree i agree and i'm sure our audience agrees as well so thank you so much as i said wouldn't be crazy if they didn't have you on board and to our audience in a sense thank you so much for joining us Uh, we appreciate you listening in as well for today's episode of changing out and if you enjoyed today's show please show our beloved professor some love, love like comment tell us how you felt from today's episode and until then we'll see you again next thursday at the same time bye you're listening Changing Reality. Changing Reality. Where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.